This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina hide on why the crumbling concrete crisis is just the latest phase in Rishi's doom loop. Poet Maggie Smith reflects on why her marriage disintegrated as her career took off. And presenter and comedian Richard Osman reveals how he conquered TV and publishing. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before we begin, just a warning, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, another bad week for the Tories, as both the school buildings and the government's tenuous facade appear to be crumbling. And as the Education Secretary Gillian Keegan is finding out, to be a Tory minister is to spend the bulk of your time cleaning up your own party's messes. By Marina Hyde. Read by Serena Manteghi. As you might be dimly aware, the Education Secretary, Gillian Keegan, had quite a bad day on Monday. Having conducted an interview with ITV News on the crumbling concrete crisis that has forced school closures at the 11th hour before the start of term, Keegan was still mic'd up when she inquired, apparently rhetorically, Does anyone ever say, you know what, you've done a fucking good job, because everyone else has sat on their arse and done nothing? No signs of that? No? Nope. Nope, not seeing any signs of that, I'm afraid. In fact, the mere fact of this interview has obliterated the possibility of signs of that emerging. It was signs-acidal. Fans of Turbo Cringe TV will have enjoyed Gillian later being forced, Clockwork Orange style, to watch this clip of herself live on Sky News. Her reactions were shown in split-screen. When it got to the bad bit, Keegan actually let out a laugh. Some people have chosen to categorise this as typical heartless Tory not giving a toss, but it was surely the involuntary nervous reaction of someone being made to watch the most embarrassing moment of her day, and indeed her decade, on live TV. 
As the laugh escaped her lips, I imagined her spad silently gnawing through his entire fist in the green room. Like the recent Black Mirror episode, Joan is Awful, the spectacle of Gillian is Awful was grimly brilliant and brilliantly grim. Inevitably, the show to which Gillian's day was most compared was The Thick of It, which, despite first airing in 2005, has ended up satirising its future as much as its present. Parallels were drawn between Keegan and The Thick of It's bungling Secretary of State, Nicola Murray. Certainly, you might have detected some of the latter's Category 5 haplessness in the part of the fateful ITV interview that Keegan actually knew would be aired when she found herself trying to mitigate the situation by uttering the words, A school can collapse for many reasons. Guys, can you please get this into some sort of perspective? There are loads of things that could make a school cave in on your children's heads. You're being very small-minded obsessing about this one. Many will be very long past the point of sympathy with the absolute shower in government, but it should be said that unlike half the people in the cabinet, Keegan isn't a product of Oxford's PPE degree and has actually had a job outside politics, having worked her way up to senior business roles from apprenticing age 16 in a Merseyside car factory. Perhaps, like Murray, she is less easy to loathe than other cabinet inadequates. We don't hate Nicola Murray. We get that she's not up to it, and we get that that really matters, but we can kind of see how whatever mess she's in happened, and we can kind of see how her and her team's ideas for getting her out of it seem like they might work until they don't, and make it all so much worse. The special source is the remorseless logic of it all. The sense that despite the illusion of being the big important minister, making the big important choices, you are fated by your own shortcomings in a wholly dysfunctional system. As Nicola observes as the disintegration gathers pace, we are a dying government, our hair's falling out and we're coughing up blood, and our kids are asking us to change the will. This is the comic-slash-tragicomic slash tragic, doom loop in which Rishi Sunak's administration is now inescapably stuck, except with real schools and real children's heads. The Sunak government neither makes the political weather nor seems able to predict it. Everything it does and everything it and its predecessors neglected to do now constitutes some sort of fuck-up extended universe. Worse still, crossover events have started happening. The crisis franchises are bleeding into one another. Keegan was holidaying in Spain as the crumbling concrete situation reached decision point last week, but was unable to get back in good time to deal with it because of the air traffic control chaos. Every week, in some form or another, the Sunak government has to endure the mildly out-of-body experience of watching itself do clean-up on messes of its own making – Though these failures can be grotesque and iniquitous, there is a kind of absurdism to them. The mood can be crystallised in a seemingly endless variety of single sentences. Here's one. Having recently defended Lee Anderson for telling migrants to fuck off back to France, the Prime Minister had little choice but to defend Gillian Keegan for demanding to know why people weren't saluting her for doing a fucking good job 
even though she was explaining that schools could literally fall down. Put like that, even Sunak must be on the point of seeing that this is all galaxies beyond something that can be fixed by late nights at the desk in the cashmere hoodie. Unfortunately, Rishi's belief that you can work hard and be a details man and that somehow that's enough is all he's got. An official who works with the Prime Minister reportedly told Dominic Cummings recently he'd make a great PS, Private Secretary, or DG, Director General. Every meeting with him improves some second-order thing a bit, but he isn't doing the PM's job. Hard to argue with that. Tunak is a supply PM, brought in after another implosion when he became the fifth Conservative Prime Minister inside six and a half years. This mad merry-go-round is part of the system rot. Gillian Keegan is Education Secretary, a role that has been held by ten different people since the Conservatives assumed power in 2010. It's been held by five different people since July last year alone. What does the Conservative Party expect? What do people honestly think the outcomes will be with those inputs? Perhaps the other nine education secretaries are the owners of the arses to which Gillian Keegan was referring. Perhaps it was the media. Perhaps it was the other nameless countries who are doing worse. Perhaps the Conservatives have simply reached the we-need-different-voters stage of the grief process. In the end, it doesn't matter. What matters is that the system is totally dysfunctional and that there is absolutely no compelling plan for how to fix it, much less deliver the radical overhaul it needs from either of the main parties. Unless he gets one, we'll be back here or somewhere similar under a Keir Starmer government. Maybe that's why the leader of the opposition only ever speaks like he's managing your expectations. As for the current government... However much activity we see from them now, it all just feels like light from a dead star. Maybe Rishi Sunak really does believe he can turn things around. But there can't be too many more days like Monday before he realises that this is a movie in which he has been dead all along. That was The Hapless Gillian Keegan Had One Thing Right. This is a nation ruled by our sitters, by Marina Hyde, read by Serena Mantegi. Next, when Maggie Smith's poem Good Bones went viral, it helped to expose a fault line at the centre of her marriage. What happened when the true dynamic of her relationship was revealed? Read by Genevieve Adam. So how would you describe your marriage? What happened? Every time someone asks about my marriage, or about my divorce, I pause for a moment. Inside that imperceptible pause, I'm thinking about the cost of answering fully. I'm weighing it against the cost of silence. I could tell them about the postcard I found in my husband's work bag, addressed to a woman in another state, a place he'd been visiting for business. I could tell them how much I've spent on lawyers, or how much I've spent on therapy, or how much I've spent on dental work from grinding my teeth in my sleep, and how many hours I sleep, which is not many, but at least if I'm only sleeping a few hours a night, then I'm only grinding my teeth a few hours a night. I could talk about how a lie is worse than whatever the lie is draped over to conceal, 
I could talk about what a complete mindfuck it is to lose the shelter of your marriage, but also how expansive the view is without that shelter. How big the sky is. Sometimes people just grow apart, I say. I smile. Take a sip of water. Next question. In 2015, three years before I knew my marriage was over, I sat in a coffee shop and wrote a poem on a legal pad, which is where most of my poems begin. It began, Life is short, though I keep this from my children. And it grew into a piece about the fears and hopes I have for my children and the complicated world I brought them into, equal parts terrible and beautiful. I titled it Good Bones. The poem was published online in the journal Waxwing the following June, the same week as the Pulse nightclub massacre in Orlando and the murder of MP Joe Cox in England. The poem went viral. Reporters emailed, messaged me on social media, called. Meanwhile, I was parenting two children, ages three and seven. I was their mom most of all. That was how I was known to people in my life, and that was fine with me. Even after the poem went viral, I was still hidden, cleverly disguised as one of the least visible creatures on earth, a middle-aged mother. I felt that my husband treated my writing work like an interruption of my domestic work. My occasional travel had been a sore spot in our marriage since before Good Bones went viral, but more and more requests were coming in to my speaker's agency because of that poem. I'd spend two days here, four days there, and a couple of times a year I'd be gone for a week-long workshop. But the bulk of my time was spent at home. An invitation to give a reading or attend a conference or book festival meant I wouldn't be available. Even if I arranged after-school playdates for the kids, even if I planned for my parents to be available until he arrived home from work, who would pack the school lunches? Who would drop them off in the morning? Who was going to make sure the favorite pajamas were clean for PJ and Stuffy Day at school? And, always a fear, what if one of them ran a fever and couldn't go to school? This was extra work for him. And extra emotional labor, too. Because, as the self-employed parent, I'd always handled these things. And meanwhile, what would I be doing for work? Reading poems? Teaching workshops? Going to dinners? giving talks, being interviewed in front of an audience. Maybe for business, but it sure sounded a lot like pleasure. When my husband traveled for work, I looked forward to his return, especially if the kids were sick or I had multiple deadlines of my own. But the daily fires were ones I was used to putting out myself. On the other hand, when I would call home from a trip, I remember feeling that I was in trouble. I'd made his life more difficult, and I might pay for that with the silent treatment or a cold reception when I returned home. No, how was your trip? No, congratulations. Or, glad it went well. Or, I missed you. I didn't feel missed as a person. I felt missed as staff. My invisible labor was made painfully visible when I left the house. I was needed back in my post. It's a mistake to think of one's life as plot, but there's foreshadowing everywhere. When my husband introduced me at the release party for my second book of poems, The Well Speaks of Its Own Poison, in 2015, I was standing off to the side of the stage, my arm around our daughter, holding her close. As he said many kind things about me, I remember thinking, huh, what he said about me and my writing in public felt different from his attitude at home. 
Now I think of us in that room with all those people watching. He's so proud of her, some of them probably thought. They are so happy together. In the beginning, I told no one about the postcard. I wanted to save my marriage, but I wanted to save it without anyone knowing it needed saving. That is some serious firstborn daughter energy right there. We started marriage counseling about a month after I found the postcard. I didn't tell the counselor about it, as if not saying it aloud could keep it in the realm of the not quite real. The addressee wasn't the problem, after all, right? She was a symptom. So what was the problem? My work was the problem. I was the problem. My traveling for readings, workshops, conferences. That wasn't the deal. Though I didn't know we'd had a deal. Before we were a couple, my husband and I became friends in a creative writing workshop at university. I think that fact communicates some of the tension in our marriage, particularly in the last years. I was working as a writer and editor. He was working as an attorney. When I got good news related to my writing, a publication, a grant, an invitation, I sensed him wince inwardly. So I stopped sharing good news. I made myself small, folded myself up origami tight. I canceled or declined upcoming events. See, I'll do anything to make this marriage work. What would I have done to save my marriage? I would have abandoned myself, and I did, for a time. I would have done it for longer, if he'd let me. After we returned home from our last family vacation, we sat side by side in the marriage counselor's office. His narrative. We had gone to the beach with our kids, and I never played in the waves with the family. My perspective. Never was hyperbole. Rarely is true. What I said. I didn't want to be near him. I was too sad. What I didn't say. I thought about dying all the time. Or not dying, but disappearing. Poof. I didn't want to die. Not really. But I wanted relief. I wanted to stop feeling what I was feeling. I carried all of that with me to the coast, and I didn't know what to do with it there. The sticking point? I wrote poems at the ocean and didn't play in the waves. The marriage counselor said, It isn't about the waves. What I said, He knows I've never liked being in the ocean much. Even before we had kids, I mostly sat in my beach chair and read or wrote. What I didn't say. I wrote poems at the beach because I needed to make something more than sadness. What I didn't say. I'm adding my sadness to the list of things we'll never get the sand out of. Like anything you take to the beach. It'll be gritty forever. A few weeks later, I was sitting on the left side of the couch looking at the marriage counselor, sensing my husband's tense presence to my right. I didn't know it yet, but it was our last counseling session together. I summoned my courage. I've been thinking, and I need to say something. Deep breath. Why has this been all about him? What makes him happy? What he needs? What about what I need to be happy? I can't be certain, but I swear I saw something like relief on the counselor's face. Looking back on that afternoon, I put myself in her shoes. What would it be like to have a couple come in to see me? And their immediate crisis is this. The man doesn't want the woman to continue traveling for her work, but he's going to keep traveling for his. 
what would it be like to watch the woman frantically agree to try to appease her husband? Would this imbalance of power trouble me? Would I expect their plan to fail? If the answers are yes and yes, then a look of relief would make sense. But I'll never be sure. That day in the marriage counselor's office, I came clean. I finally told her everything. I finally admitted to myself what I'd been trying to avoid. I couldn't be the person, or the writer, or the mother I wanted to be in my marriage. The deal wasn't working. Walking home from that session, I knew. We'd separate, definitely. Divorce, maybe. He'd get his own place, at least for a while. We'd have the family talk that breaks kids' hearts. I'd been trying to save the marriage, but I needed to save myself. A few months after my husband moved out of the house, I was trying to calm and reassure my son, then six years old, at bedtime. He said, I know, I know. I have a mom who loves me, and I have a dad who loves me, but I don't have a family. I felt the wind go out of me, felt myself emptying, falling, a balloon drifting down from the ceiling. Because he was right. He still had all of his family members, but our family unit Our foursome was gone. When people asked how the children were doing, I told them, fine. It was mostly true. I told them I was grateful at least the children didn't lose anyone. They still have their parents, and they have each other. What I didn't say is when I lost my family, I lost someone. The person I'd called my person. In this way, my house is haunted. There is so much I'd wish to undo. I imagine it cinematic. I'm putting the postcard back into my husband's work bag, and then his hand is taking it out. Then he's unwriting it, his handwriting disappearing letter by letter from the blank side. And then he's back in the shop where he bought it, putting it back on the carousel of postcards, and he's walking out of the shop backwards. Over and over again I see it like a film. I'm pulling my hands from the bag, walking backwards away from where it sat on the dining room chair, sitting back down on the couch again. But the undoing can't stop there. I'd have to keep going, to reverse everything that happened before then. Reverse through the business trips, the viral poem, the second book, the second miscarriage, the second law firm, the first miscarriage, the second bout of postpartum depression, the second child, the first law firm, the first bout of postpartum depression, the first child, law school, grad school. There is so much undoing that needs to happen. By the time my hand slipped into the bag, so much had already happened. Too much, maybe. There is so much I would wish to undo, if I could go back. But back to where? Where was it safe? Do you think you'll get married again? People ask this. Well-meaning people. People who want me to be settled and happy. And I'm not sure how to answer. I could say I've promised my children no changes. That one night, tucking my daughter in, lying in bed in the dark beside her, I promised her that no one is moving in and no one is moving out. I could say that what the kids need now is stability and consistency, 
They've had no power in how their lives are being shaped. They've been told where they will live, and when, and with whom. I understand, because I only have so much power myself. So I decided to be as constant as I can. I decided to bore the hell out of them with my same old, same old love. I could say that yes, it's sometimes lonely doing it on my own, but feeling lonely when you're with your partner is worse than being alone. Being with someone who doesn't want the best for you is worse than being alone. I could say that when I think about my dream partner, what I want in that person is so basic, so low bar, I'm almost ashamed to say it out loud. Someone who's happy to see me. Someone who smiles when I walk into a room. Someone who can be happy with me and for me. I don't know. It's possible. If life has taught me anything, it's that anything's possible. Next question. That was, I suddenly became a hit writer, but I felt my husband treated my career like an interruption of my domestic work by Maggie Smith, read by Genevieve Adam. We'll be back after this short break. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hello guys, this is Shante, the host of the Guardian's Pop Culture Podcast. We're back for more. And listen, when it comes to pop culture, if you're talking about it, we've got it covered. As an extra treat for you, I'm going to be at the London Podcast Show in King's Place on Sunday the 17th of September with the expert matchmaker Paul C. Brunson. You know, our fave Married at First Sight expert. Do you want to find your perfect partner in life? Then you have to come and see us. Paul has all the tips and tricks. Get your tickets in person or go to kingsplace.co.uk forward slash pop culture. Welcome back to Weekend. Finally, Richard Osman went from a behind the scenes TV ideas man to a fixture in front of the camera. Then, the Pointless Stars Thursday Murder Club books became the biggest fiction phenomenon since Harry Potter. Charlotte Edwards meets the man who conquered TV and publishing. Read by Geoffrey Newland. Richard Osman says that people will always tell you who they are, if you listen. So, I listen. 
and he tells me, somewhat urgently, that he is not a nerd. Nerd presenting, perhaps. Most explicitly as the creator of TV quiz shows and host of BBC One's Pointless, absolutely not a nerd. The evidence he supplies, twitching his shoulders and tugging his jacket as if to do it up, is that he does not like superheroes. He does not like sci-fi, despite, he jokes, marrying the Doctor Who actor Ingrid Oliver. Does not have nerd hobbies, such as chess. Correction, he did like chess, he just wasn't very good. So, how would he describe himself? Testosterone, a huge sports lover. I'm fairly alpha at times. Trouble is, this rippling machismo is all hidden under a fairly gentle exterior. I take in the gentle exterior. He's dressed in shades of blue, bloodhound features behind trademark specs. Minutes earlier, he told me, I love statistics. He explained his formula for decoding the world. He said, I'm an alpha introvert. Top of the sports he enjoys is snooker. He chose the theme tune from the BBC's snooker coverage as one of his desert island discs, has encyclopedic knowledge of the game, and goes to the World Championships. Perhaps I've misunderstood nerd. Perhaps Richard Osman is a man of contradictions. Here is another. Behind him, through the window of this office in Westminster, is the MI6 building across the river. It sits as if on his left shoulder. Appropriate because Osman was given the tap while at Cambridge, took a series of fun spy tests which, ultimately, he failed. They just said, nah, it's fine. He did wargaming scenarios, chatted to people who got older and posher throughout the day. Honestly, his voice develops an insistent edge. I would have been terrible. I'm too tall, six foot seven, not bright enough, and if I have a secret, I tell everybody. You could not find a worse spy. Also, I cannot tell a lie. And yet, and yet, he writes fiction. Fiction so popular that the Thursday Murder Club series, the fourth, The Last Devil to Die, is out next week. It's publishing's new Harry Potter, selling five million copies to date and grossing more than £25 million. He is the biggest new fiction author of the decade, the series has been optioned by Steven Spielberg and he has been signed to write a separate, undisclosed crime series for Netflix. Or, as Osman puts it in his self-deprecating way, I'm doing TV things and film stuff. Hasn't Penguin, in whose offices we sit, just signed a new four-book contract with him, reportedly worth more than £10 million? I was given... Oh, I'm not sure what to say the advance was, he says, seeming bashful. I've been given an amount of money which makes sense for Penguin and makes sense for me. Only two books of the deal will be Thursday Murder Club titles. He has begun another series with new characters. This should not upset fans, he says. After all, Agatha Christie had Miss Marple and Hercule Poirot. That's not me comparing myself to Agatha Christie, by the way, but you do have to diversify. For those few not au fait with Osman's pensioner procedurals, perhaps you have not passed any bookshop windows in three years. The Thursday Murder Club is set in a retirement village. Osman's sleuths, his A-team, are Elizabeth, a former spy, Joyce, a former nurse, Ibrahim, a psychiatrist, 
and Ron, who fondly recalls his years as a rowdy trades union official. They're all quarters of my own brain. I'm most Ibrahim. Ibrahim has a maths-based, practical outlook on life, enjoys data, laminating printouts, time-specific goals, and is bad at noticing what people look like. Then a bit of Joyce, then a bit of Ron. I'm at least Elizabeth. She's who I'd love to be. He says as an aside, I'm still available, by the way, if MI6 read this. I could be useful, because no one is going to suspect me now. Rejected by the intelligence services, he graduated in 1992 and went into TV, working first at Planet 24, boisterous makers of The Word and The Big Breakfast. Colleagues remember him as very quiet. At Hattrick Productions, he wrote for Whose Line Is It Anyway? and Have I Got News For You? Later, he became the master of the TV format, working on, among other things, 8 Out of 10 Cats and Deal or No Deal. While creative director of Endemol, he sold Pointless to the BBC and ended up presenting it with his university chum, Alexander Armstrong. There were failures too, among them 24-Hour Quiz and Boys Unlimited, a music industry satire starring a young James Corden. Oh my God, I know what failure tastes like, he says, shaking his head. I also know it's what you do next that matters. Always. By his late 40s, He'd made enough dosh and, anyway, was no longer driven by sitting at the table and banging my fist on the desk. So he started the Thursday Murder Club, quietly, secretly, and showed not a soul, although halfway through he confessed to his brother, Matt, bassist in the band Suede. In turn, Matt confessed he too was halfway through a novel, which was a weird coincidence. In the years since, terrestrial TV has fallen off a cliff, The world that I was in, it's not there. The money's not there. I have no home to go back to. Some might see the blossoming of this late second career as a thing of romance, an example that an entirely new life after 50 is an achievable thing. Osman is more prosaic. He draws a direct comparison between the mechanics of TV entertainment and the procedural format. You know at the start that you're heading somewhere. You're at A and you're going to get to Z. You just have no idea how. I find it more creative to be given a framework, to be given constraints. As a TV host, I'm saying, you don't need to like me. Here's a show for you. Here's a format. I'm going to take you in a direction. You answer some questions. And in a crime book, it's the same. You go, look, I'm setting you a puzzle. Because otherwise, what is it? The novel. Just me talking which doesn't interest me. Osman says he is not the sort of person to write about love and loss. I don't feel like I am somebody who can sit down and describe what the sky looks like, the beauty of the summer flowers, whereas I can write a story and move the action on. I'm very comfortable imagining worlds, imagining people, imagining what they might do. He puts the extraordinary success of the books down to an innate understanding of what makes Britain tick, cross-reft with data. The two school subjects I use every day are O-level statistics and my O-level sociology. Sociology tells you the world wasn't made this way. It has been constructed by us through a series of choices. Statistics tells you the truth about things. With those two tools, you can pretty much decode anything, I think. Why people do things, what drives people. Decode. I find it obvious why people behave in the way they do. 
but you can check you're right by looking at the statistics. Second source it, so to speak. Exactly, just in case. But we don't use statistics brilliantly in this country. My whole career is, this is what I think people will like and why. He was always amazed in television to be surrounded by people for whom that wasn't their natural instinct. On the other hand, he believes there is often a gross distortion in the things we're told everyone likes. The TV series Succession, for instance. It's only watched by a teensy sliver of the population, but for all the amplification it gets in the news, we'd assume it was a nationwide preoccupation. Ditto GB News. Statistically, they're insignificant when it comes to what's happening in this country. Yet you would think from social media that those are the two groups of people fighting each other. There's no one in those groups. It's just that everyone in them are the people we hear from. So I drive my bus straight through the middle and park it far away from both sides. In the real world, people are rarely as obsessed with politics as we are told, he says. He compares it with football. Some people are fanatical, go every week, know all the players' names, etc. Most tune in every couple of years when there is a big tournament. Cooper's Chase, the fictional retirement village where his characters reside, is based on the community in Sussex where he bought a house for his mother, Brenda. He looked around and immediately realised the potential. Here was the generation who, culturally, are overlooked by everybody. That generation did much more interesting and unusual things, overcame much bigger hurdles and obstacles. It's a generation full of wisdom, full of brio, looking for new adventures and new mischief. There are very few consequences to anything they do or say. That's freeing for a writer, to have characters who are going, no one's going to arrest me, I might as well do this. They're overlooked because we worship at the temple of youth, he says. I mean, God knows what our generation will be like when we get to that age. Insufferable. Some of the best fictional sleuths are older and wiser, from Miss Marple to Columbo to Jessica Fletcher in Murder, She Wrote. But he cannot abide the term cosy fiction, words he introduces to the conversation and has a severe allergic reaction to without any input from me. If you really read my books, there's some quite bad stuff happening, some very non-cute references. It's definitely not cosy. Today, you can write a book about a detective who runs a sweet shop in a seaside town, and someone will publish it. But that's okay, he says, moving from the heat of his own irritation. I get it. What also nettles are the copycat swirly font covers that have followed in the slipstream of the murder club's success. Richard Bravery created the cover. So great, so iconic. Now everyone does the same. We're working on the next series. The two of us sitting there going, we'll show him. We'll give them a different cover, a cover that makes them go, ooh, that's what we need to copy now. The new project is more Sherlock Holmesy in that it revolves around an agency and is more of a traditional detective thing. With the Thursday Murder Club, the crime has to happen to them, whereas as soon as you've got a detective agency, someone can knock on the door and give you your plot. The characters are a father and daughter-in-law who work on different sides of the world, so it's slightly more internationalist, hopefully the same wit and Britishness about it, but they can jump out of helicopters and kick down police station doors, which Elizabeth is not able to do. Osman always loved crime. He grew up reading Christie and adored Patricia Highsmith, creator of Tom Ripley. He also likes the peculiar Britishness of the worlds created by Barbara Pym and Muriel Spark. 
it didn't feel like a jump to write books, having written for TV. Although he has been accepted with open arms by the crime-writing community, there is still a trace of the testiness he felt over an early suggestion that he is one of a slew of celebrities turned authors. There's certain books that come out and people are open about having a ghost. I get that people know what they're getting and understand it's a brand, but there's also a group of people, Bob Mortimer is one, where we're just writers. I've written my whole career, my whole life. Graham Norton has always written, Dawn French has. It is not a surprise that these people go on and write books. You're allowed to. Also, no one is a writer. Everyone is something, then becomes a writer. You get to a certain age and think, well, I want to write a novel. I've got stuff in my head that I want to say. No one ever buys a second novel if the first one isn't good. Included in Stuff I Want to Say are urgent issues. To Osman, it's key that the books are funny, in the same droll way that he is, with issues smuggled in. To know that you've written something that's going to entertain people, and while doing it, giving a family a way into a debate, a discussion, that's my favourite thing about the books being successful. You get to talk about interesting things right in the middle of culture. The Last Devil to Die is no exception. It's a crime story, yes. But at core, it's a book about dementia and assisted dying. Where his mother lives, residents are over 75, and they had a big debate about it. Incredibly rational, incredibly polite. Lots of disagreement, but everyone listening to each other. People who have been medical professionals, people who've been mental health professionals, and people who've obviously lost loved ones. It's something that you're allowed to talk about. It's not crazy to want to die when you're in pain with no way of getting out of that pain. I absolutely respect the views of people for whom assisted dying would be an impossibility. But it's an argument that's not going away. We have such control over our lives. It seems weird that the final bit we have no control over. An awful lot of people would sleep easier if they knew their last few years wouldn't be very difficult. Osman watched dementia take possession of his working-class firebrand grandfather, watched him try to cling to moments of clarity. His mother told him that in hospital you could see his heart beating and knew it was never going to give up. He was such a strong man, but he would absolutely not have wanted to be there. Osman drew from this experience and also research. The Alzheimer's Society said, if you've met one person with dementia, then you've met one person with dementia. That's how I approached it, really, knowing that everyone's experience will be different. Richard Osman was born in 1970, the second child of David Osman and Brenda Wright. He grew up near Haywards Heath and West Sussex. He was born with nystagmus, an eye condition which means the world appears somewhat blurred. A building will appear like an impressionist painting, he has said, and he can't make out the birds in the trees. Whether or not it's a consequence, he's able to tune into a multi-layered soundscape. If six different conversations are going on, I'll hear every single one, so that's a useful skill. When he was nine, his world was ruptured. He remembers going into the lounge with his glass of orange squash for a family meeting. There, his father informed him and Matt, who was three years older, that he'd fallen in love with someone else and was going away. He said he hoped that was all right. David Osman maintained six or so months of contact with his children before moving a distance that required them to take long coach journeys to visit. It was difficult for a child, and Richard, in a tantrum, told his father he did not want to see him anymore. 
His father took this at face value. Brenda was left to take care of everything. But God, if you're brought up by one good parent, then you've hit the jackpot, haven't you? So long as that kid knows they're loved, he adds as a mumbled aside that an awful lot of British politics can be explained by the lack of even one loving parent. Because if you weren't loved, what are you looking for? What you want to achieve is very different from someone who was brought up in a loving home. That said, he has no idea how Brenda managed. It must have been hell. The fact that I didn't know it was hell is a product of A, me being a boy, and not in tune, and B, she wore it so lightly, it was not something she wanted to trouble us with. She did all the work that she could find in addition to her day job as a teacher, including stuffing envelopes for a fraction of a penny a go. Occasionally, he'd hear her weeping over the lost promise of her life. But as a child, it was too difficult to take on board, and he walled off those sounds of disappointment, disappearing instead into the world of TV. His eyesight meant he had to sit close, but television showed him the world as he couldn't see it. Birds in the trees, buildings. Sports action replays meant he could see the ball. He watched everything. Mainlined British culture through the medium of television. He had idiosyncratic hobbies, such as making a World Cup of music bands, a format he later reproduced on Twitter when he did the World Cup of crisps and Christmas sweets. Meanwhile, Matt was in his room playing music. His mother let them be. She gave us absolute educational freedom, never made us go to piano classes or do French tuition, never made us do homework. She didn't push us to go to university, although I think she would have been horrified if we hadn't. She played it cool. She just trusted us both. That's an amazing thing to give to kids. You can't really tell either of us anything, even now. He laughs. She thought, these two seem to have an idea of what they want to do. That was her parenting style. I'd buy this more entirely if it weren't for the fairly barbed quote Brenda gave to the Times about his writing style being quite staccato, which suggests she has no qualms chibbying her son. Either way, it paid off. Osman says he was probably the first from his school to go to Cambridge, where he did sociology and politics, although he still regrets not doing American studies at Leeds. His brother, who was proper clever, did economics at the London School of Economics. On his father, who died in 2016, he shrugs. Even before David left, Richard doesn't remember him being around a lot. He was a teacher, then something else. He's not sure what. Listen, he was fundamentally a perfectly nice human being. I don't sit here trembling with fear in my heart when I think about my dad. I'd love to feel something, some stirring of emotion. I probably did in my twenties when I made contact with him again. I think I manufactured some anger. Ultimately, I don't think parenthood was for him. So he was able to divest himself of those responsibilities. While Osman had girlfriends in his teens, he didn't really drink and wasn't very worldly. I don't really understand what people did. Throughout life I've picked up clues as to what it is to be human. I know what it is to be me, but to be other people? I always find it extraordinary. He says his height and eyesight meant he kept to the periphery. He wasn't going on big clique holidays or setting up theatre groups. He found sitting and listening sociologically interesting. After a beat, he says, I blame a lot of things in my life on my eyesight. 
but I think actually it might just be my personality. He married young and had two kids, Ruby at 27, Sonny two years later. He will say precisely zero about his divorce. It's not my story, if you know what I mean. He quickly adds that he's hiding nothing grim, it's just her privacy. Whether work was going well or his marriage was going badly, there was another issue nagging away. In his 30s, he had an agnorisis of sorts, went to therapy and was diagnosed with addictive behaviours, the most explicit around food. For years, he'd suffered bouts of binge eating, an absolute compulsion to eat, an inability to stop eating, shame afterwards and then repeat. The pattern could continue for weeks or months. I find myself in situations sometimes where my behaviour around food is so absurd It makes no sense. It's certainly not self-care. Does he remember what age he was when it started? Oh, like ten years old? Yeah, I wonder what the inciting incident was. And food when you're ten is something that you can't control. You're not going to become an alcoholic or a drug addict. While it doesn't have the doomed glamour of alcohol or drugs, he has said, the behaviour is in essence the same, although slightly more behavioural and slightly less to do with the substance itself, as with love or sex addiction. But the second you go to therapy, you realise that's just a symptom of the problem. You realise you're just numbing whatever pain. You're numbing the things you don't want to think or talk about. These are not things you can give up, he says, so you are faced with the lifelong challenge of controlling it. I'm either controlling it or not controlling it at any given time. He also believes an inability to control eating is so insanely common. You can't look around at the shape we're all in and not think that there's an issue. It's not spoken about because it's still laughed at. He no longer feels any shame associated with it and the affliction has given him compassion. When I think about how other people behave, I go, yeah, I get it. You should see what I do. He adds, it's impossible to be a human being and not have issues. Later he says in passing that he thinks Boris Johnson has food issues. You can see that. He's got everything issues. There's nothing that will fill that hole. He's described his 40s as really good fun. He was single for much of it and there was a merry-go-round of dates. I was always looking for the one. Always knew I wanted to get married. Absolutely wanted to fall in love. And listen, I enjoyed the process. Friends would go... I don't think that is what you're looking for. I think you enjoy playing the field. I would always say, it really is what I'm looking for. Were they chucking women at him? Um, not literally. I had my 20s and my 40s for sure. My 50s and my 30s. I settled with the love of my life. It's an enormous stroke of good luck. But as soon as I met Ingrid, I thought, great, done. I knew it. They met when she appeared on his show, House of Games, in summer 2020, and she moved in that October. The following year, he bought a ring and planned his proposal, which was to be in a special restaurant on the third day of a holiday in Amman. Once there, he got in an awful flap and blew the whole schedule by proposing on day one, tears all over his face. Is this an example of his inability to keep a secret? He laughs. My heart wouldn't let me. It was absolutely bursting. Teasing, I ask how he gets on with Oliver's mother, Joe Gideon. Osman describes himself as a lefty 
and she is the Tory MP for Stoke-on-Trent, a Redwaller instrumental in ousting Johnson. It's the only time Osman looks terrified. He doesn't lie. Instead, he says, Let's not go there. We won't go into that. That was Richard Osman on how he conquered both TV and publishing. I'm an alpha introvert by Charlotte Edwards. Read by Jeffrey Newland. If you've been affected by the issues raised in this piece, we've included details of a helpline you can contact on the episode page at theguardian.com. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles are read by Serena Mantegi, Genevieve Adam and Jeffrey Newland and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer was Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.